This is Andy Murray on Control the Controllables. And a big welcome to episode 200. We told you that we were going to get someone special for this very special episode. 200, three and a half years into Control the Controllables. And welcome, Sir Andy. And also... A massive welcome to you if this is your first time listening to the podcast or if you are back for more and you have been with us from the beginning. We are so excited to bring you this amazing episode and I just want to take a little bit of an opportunity here whilst I've got you. One, liking, sharing, rating, reviewing, sharing these podcasts far and wide massively help us in our pursuit of continuing to bring great guests. And also, just to to reconnect with why we set these podcasts up three and a half years ago, it was during the, the challenging pandemic period, we wanted to give something back to the tennis community, we wanted to energise people, we wanted to entertain people with amazing stories, and we wanted to educate through the medium of tennis coaches, tennis players, people in the tennis world, and start to dig a little bit deeper into it. And we have loved the journey so far. It's taken us to this point where we have our 200th episode. And and I genuinely have to say, when I dreamt about who we could get onto this podcast, the number one person I always had in my mind was Andy Murray. And you might ask the question, why? Because we could try and get Roger Federer. We could try and get Rafael Nadal. There's so many big names in the sport. Well, I I, I want to try and explain it a little bit. I was thinking about it today and it's, you know, Andy's been such a big part of, of my life and, and so many of our lives for so many years. And when I was a professional tennis player, he was on the up. And that's when the connection started all of those years back. But I felt I could relate to him. You know, a small town, cold winters, you know, always have that feeling of having to move down south in the UK to get competitive opportunities, to get training opportunities. It felt to me like it was it was something different. It was something we hadn't seen before in, in British tennis. You know, we'd always had people in British tennis that fitted the mould of what that was a tennis player was meant to be and then the breakthrough you know he started to break through people at first they didn't get him but I always felt that I did you know he was he was someone who was unique and for me the biggest uniqueness he had is he he never put ceilings in the way and I think so many of us in British tennis over the years have and and he was this young Scottish kid he was tough he was he was ready ready to rumble ready to get stuck in and sometimes that maybe came across a little bit brash however there was a heart of gold that was in there and we started to see that the vulnerable side started to come out and then we cried with him you know 2012 when he lost to Roger Federer at Wimbledon we all cried Andy cried you know we then celebrated with him and then we cried even more when he won the Olympics then US Open then went on to win Wimbledon and here he was this young lad from a small town in Scotland it has so much history for for many reasons and he ruled the world in a sport like tennis and the sport had changed forever and then we lost him we felt that his body had gone his his hip had gone and and almost the the biggest 
credit we can give Andy Murray behind all of those trophies is the resilience, the grit, the the way that he's been able to put this career back together. He's back into the top 40 in the world. Nobody thought he could do it with a metal metal ball in his hip, but he has, and, and, he's, and he's taught us so much. And then the family man came out, and then he started to then attack bigger picture things, equality, and he continues to inspire on and off the court. And in my opinion, Sandy Murray will go down as the greatest ever British male athlete. But what an honour it was to spend time talking through his career, talking about his family, and so much more. And I, and I want to introduce you for our 200th episode to the 11-time Grand Slam finalist, the three-time Grand Slam winner, winning twice at Wimbledon, the Davis Cup winner with Great Britain, the double gold medalist, and former world number one, Sir Andy Murray. So, Sir Andy Murray, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, Andy. And we've had your coaches on the show. We've had your mum on the show. We've had your brother on on the show. We've had fitness coaches on the show. We've had your friends on the show. But it finally took your father-in-law, Nigel Sears, to come on before we could persuade you to come on to control the controllable. So I guess we know who wears the trousers in your relationship, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got, got to keep Nigel sweet. Yeah. So a, a big thank you. And to the, to the listener, Nigel Sears episode one, nine, seven. It's a, it's a brilliant episode as well. Um, but Andy, I want to jump into lots of things. I know we don't have loads of time, but I think this to start with here, you are, you're, you're in the middle of a, another epic trip away from home, but you seem like you're still absolutely loving it out there. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I think, you know, one of the things that quite a lot of the players as they get older struggle with is like the traveling um, side of things. And I actually, I still really enjoy that. You know, I, I love, you know, traveling the world and going to, you know, usually it's cities that we've been to beforehand but sometimes you know get to experience new tournaments new places um and yeah a lot of the the cities we get to go to are some of the the best cities in the world so i still really enjoy that aspect of it it's hard being away from the you know the family for long uh long trips but you know my, like my family are coming out to new york for 10 days in the middle of the trip to sort of split it up a little bit which which obviously helps and does it feel different this time around, you know, because you kind of got to the point where it felt like your career was maybe over and it's almost like bonus time. Does it does it feel different? Does it feel like you're able to enjoy the cities a little bit more and remove yourself from just being Andy Murray, the tennis player? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, well, I, I don't know if it's the case for all of the players, but certainly, yeah, I wasn't as curious about going out and seeing the the cities when when I was younger like I pretty much would arrive you know go to the hotel and just split my time between the hotel and the tennis courts whereas yeah as I've got a little bit older maybe sort of spent more time away from the the sport like started to realize like how fortunate you are to get to go to these places and I try now to you know spend a little bit more time seeing some of the sites and going to museums and things like that, which I, I never did at all when, yeah. when I was younger. So yeah, I'm actually, I don't know if it's like in, enjoying it more, but just sort of 
going outside the tennis bubble a little bit. Um, experience a little more, more yeah. Yeah. And, and what about when that comes to competing? Because I guess it could go one of two ways in some ways that this is that I've got, I've got these extra years. I can now just go and play with a freedom yet. You're arguably the greatest competitor, one of the greatest competitors to ever play the sport. And the, the time that you're about to finish is getting nearer. Does it go the way of being able to play with more freedom or does it feel like shit? I've, I've got to do it now. I've got to do it now. And it applies even more pressure. Um, In that respect, it still feels the same to me. Um, You know, I'm certainly more aware of the, like, having less opportunities, um, you know, to come back and, you know, play at Wimbledon or, you know, any of the majors really. You know, I don't know how many more times I'm going to get the chance to do that. So maybe, you know, after those tournaments, you feel the disappointment a little bit more because, yeah, yeah you know you might only have one or two chances left to play there if you know if you're lucky so I didn't think about those things as much again when when I was younger like you know when you're 20 you're not thinking about you know Wimbledon in 15 years time you're sort of just on to the next tournament whereas yeah I'm a bit more aware of like the time frame uh, that I have left to to play with now and in terms of in terms of that as well, if we almost split your career into those into those two periods, kind of pre big ops and and post, the game itself, the men the men's game, twofold question, Andy, what's changed in the last five six years in your in your opinion, and what stayed the same and almost you think will just stay the same and and see the test of time in in the men's game. Um, well, I think there's more players that are they're serving, serving bigger now, um, yeah. and are are serving at a higher percentage of first serves in, and I think that's because players are getting taller now. It feels like to me, um, and yeah, my observation of like the the younger generation is that yeah they're a little bit bigger, they're moving, all of them are moving extremely well, but have sort of longer levers than than the previous generation and they have bigger strengths um but maybe maybe some more obvious weaknesses you know if i think to players like ferrer and now and those guys that were kind of at the top of the game when i was coming through there was a a lot of those types of players were very solid all round um Whereas I would say now that there's more players that, you know, have a big first serve and a big forehand, but maybe are a little bit weaker on the backhand side or maybe don't quite have the, you know, the, the same returns um, and and hand skills. Um, it, it's not to say that, you know, there, there's some of the, the top young players now maybe have better backhands and forehands, but it just, to me, it seems like there's bigger strengths, but maybe slightly more obvious weaknesses than the, than, than the previous generation. Yeah. It makes, it makes absolute sense. I can think of a few players off the top of my head as well. That, that Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and that's that. why like, for me, like Alcaraz stands, he's an amazing player and regardless of generations, he'd be winning all the time anyway or right up at the top of the game but for me that's the thing that stands out about him is that he has an all-court game he doesn't have an obvious weakness that you can go to on the court like 
you know someone like Novak um, would would have, and I, I think he's he's one of the few guys you know of the younger generation that has all, all of those tools. Yeah, because it feels now there's there's a lot to do with matchup. You know, as an example, the ones that jump to my mind, like Medvedev has the perfect game to beat Sinner, but then an Alcaraz has got the game to be able to disrupt Medvedev. And then you've got, you seem to have these different matchups that are starting to form, depending very much on who's got what strength to, to attack what weakness, I guess. Yeah, and I think that that's, again, for me, that is where Alcaraz, I think over time, he he will be very adaptable to to the opponents and the surfaces and everything and I, you know I'm he'll he'll definitely lose matches but I don't think you'll see guys with like five six seven seven zero head to head records against him whereas yeah like you mentioned some of the matchups there's players that just yeah there's just clear matchups that yeah, yeah. you know don't um you know don't favor uh one one of the guys and maybe you had that in the previous generation, but I'd say like Roger, Rafa, Novak is that, you know, when those guys are playing against each other, yes, there was depending on surface and everything would affect the head to head, but you know, they, they were winning a lot against each other. It wasn't, it wasn't totally one-sided um, in any of those matchups. Andy, I want to jump into, I want to jump into your, your upbringing a little bit, but before that, you're you're 25 and 12 on the year 2023. Um, you know you've you've had a good year. There's there's been matches that I'm sure you feel have been left out there that could have turned a good year in, in into a great year. But what's what's your analysis of 2023 so far for Andy Murray and and what are your realistic goals that you have for the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, th this year has been pretty up and down. Um, I, I struggled a lot through the clay court season. I really, obviously the surface is more challenging for me, but I really didn't, I just didn't, I didn't play well. I didn't feel comfortable um, on the clay at all um, this year. And that sort of had coincided with really a sort of lack of consistency in the coaching front during that period. I didn't really have anyone around me consistently during that sort of, six seven week period um you know and I, I sort of lost my way a little bit in that part of the season um and then yeah the rest of the year like the beginning of the year I got through a lot of matches that maybe I, I, I shouldn't have you know I won a bunch of matches from you know match points down and, and really tough positions and then you know maybe like recently like last week against Fritz I lost that match where I had you know a bunch of opportunities and probably the same at Wimbledon as well against Sitapass um as well so yeah it's been it's been up and down um a couple of results here and there really could have you know could have changed things I did feel like the draw had opened up a little bit at Wimbledon for me had I got through that match with Sitapass but wasn't to be and um yeah, we'll see see what happens the rest of the year. But I definitely, you know, last last week I played much better tennis in terms of the way that I need to play if I if I want to win the the big matches. So hopefully I can continue on that on that path. But taking you back all of these years, I think it's pretty well documented. And we're always on the podcast we talk about the start in tennis. Now we've had your mum on. She's told us about how you started in tennis, so we don't need to delve into that too much. We know that you had a, a tennis coach mom 
We know that you had an older brother. We know that, you know, that it was a very typical tennis story, I guess, starting at, at the tennis club. But the bit that I've always been fascinated with you, Andy, is you're, I'm a few years older than you, but I was around at that sort of time. And and I think the typical British tennis player at that time was quite, quite soft-centred, you know, we didn't really have any big role models. You know, Tim and Greg were there, but they were a little bit kind of on a pedestal and, and almost away from us. And then all of a sudden, this incredible competitor appeared that just seemed to be hungry, that have this drive. The, the I admire so much about your tennis, but your ability to dig deep and find ways in matches. It was almost like we'd never seen that from a British tennis player. I certainly hadn't seen that from a British tennis player for a long time. Where did that come from? Well, I think it. I mean, it, it is. It's difficult to know exactly um, where it came from. Um, I, I really do think that growing up with, you know, a brother who was also in the sport, who's you know, my Jamie's fifteen months older than me, and he, you know, he was a really, really good junior um, through until sort of fourteen, fifteen years old, and just competing with him like as as a kid you know he used to beat me at everything um when when I was little and I see it in my own children that you know the younger ones they seem to be the more competitive ones because you get used to losing at a young age and it's extremely frustrating and you're always wanting to beat your siblings or be able to do what they're doing and yeah because yeah, so much of our upbringing was in sport. So it wasn't just tennis we played with each other. It was golf, football, you know, table tennis, any of the games that we used to play around the house. Um, you know, Jamie was always just, he was always a little bit better than me, a little bit faster, stronger, smarter. So he would beat me a lot when we were kids. And my feeling is, is that by, you know, that, that that is what used to drive me to improve and, and, and get better yeah. at things trying to beat my my older brother and yeah and then it just became you know normal for me it was like trying to figure out ways to you know to win and, and get better and um you know it took me until we were about nine ten years old before i started you know getting the better of them at tennis but um that's that's my feeling of where it you know where it where it came from but i'll, I'll never know for sure and when you reflect now at 36 years old on the horrendous event that happened back in 1996 in Dunblane at, at, at the school that you were at, do you think that had an impact, that that the trauma that you went through, the the, the then togetherness of a, of a town that comes together? Do you think, you know, we often look at success stories that there, there seems to be some traumatic event that has happened. I don't know how you've reflected on that over the years. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know. My, my memories from like, from that time, you know, are, are not, are not great. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously what happened in Dunblane was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was horrific, um, you know, but then also like at that time, um, there was like three quite major events like in my life at that time, which was obviously Dunblane um, quite soon after, you know, our parents separated. And then very soon after that, Jamie moved away to 
to Cambridge, Cambridge um, right, yeah. away from home. And, you know, as I was just saying, like, I used to do everything with Jamie, like, as as children. It was, yeah, we, we, we were, I, I would say we're probably <laughs> reluctantly best friends and that, you know, like, we're fighting obviously a lot as as siblings but we did everything together and then when he moved away as well like that was also you know that was really difficult uh you know really difficult for me because yeah it it totally changed you know how what my life was like at at home as well um and yeah I missed him a lot um which probably at the time like you know when you're a kid you just kind of you sort of get on with things and you adapt to stuff. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, all of those events like in quick succession were not, not easy. And how cool is it that you've then gone on to have the careers you've had together as well and walking on the court, representing the country. Uh, it's, it's just an unbelievable story. And, and, and the other thing from that time you mentioned about your parents separating, we all know your mum. You know, she's an incredible tennis coach, an incredible driving force, um, a terrible dancer, but somebody who we've all we all had to watch. But your dad, not so much. And, you know, your dad hasn't been in the limelight as much. We obviously see him at your at your matches. How big of an influence has he been on you on your career? Well, again, like when we when we were growing up, it was both of our parents were massively into sport um and just being active so like you know our dad played a lot of golf um so me and jamie would that's what we'd be doing like in the evenings with him or you know he would play in squash leagues or five-a-side football leagues and five-a-side football teams and you know we would tag along to all of those things and we're just constantly like yeah just active um and trying different things and trying different sports because of you know because of our parents and um you know, her mum was more sort of, I'd say, like the racket sort of sports side of things. She would play badminton and she would, you know, play tennis. You know, whereas the golf and football and, and those things were more, we'd do that more with her dad. And I think that all, all a lot of our holidays as well were all like centre parks and that sort yeah. of stuff where we would just go, go we yeah we just played games like that was that was what we did and um you know they obviously gave up a lot of their sort of free time um at weekends driving us you know down to england for tennis tournaments they were they were called like adidas challenges or something at the time where you you know drive up on a friday night play matches on saturday like two matches on a saturday two matches on a sunday and drive home and yeah both of them yeah gave up a lot of a lot of their free time you know to help and allow me and Jamie to do what what we did and I think like as a parent now like it's one of the things that I have like I've reflected on like if it was my kid who was like 13 like would I be happy sending them away to go and play tournaments in America or you know when I was 15 like I went uh, obviously over to live in Spain like would I be comfortable with my own children doing that would I be happy with them going away to South America for five weeks um, and yeah like it's a, a big sacrifice that they you know made for us and you know allowed us to pursue our dreams and um, 
you know, kind of let go in a way. You know, obviously my mum has always been around the tennis tour and stuff, but it wasn't like she was traveling over to South America with us and going to all of these tournaments. And I think it must must have been really hard. I can only imagine how difficult I would find that myself. So, yeah, both of them gave up a lot to allow us to do what 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 we've gone on to do. It's certainly not an instant gratification job being a parent, you know. And like, no, <laughs> it, it takes a it takes a long time, and we've all, like you say, we've almost got to live it ourselves. And and the other one, Andy, when I think of you and and watch your career, that kind of unbelievable competitor jumps out. But the other thing that jumps out to me is your tennis IQ. And if I go back to a conversation I had with your mum, actually, and I think you would have been maybe twelve or thirteen, maybe a little bit older. But I was speaking to her at a tournament in Glasgow, and I remember it really vividly because at that point, you were on my radar already. You know, I think you'd won Orange Ball or you'd done something, you know, you were starting to make some moves. And at that weekend, Britain were playing a Davis Cup tie, and it was like Group 2 or it was on the BBC. And I remember your mum saying to me, no, 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 Andy's, Andy's different. He's not watching the British ties. He'll be on Sky watching Spain against France. You know, and it was like this on, on a clay court. You know, it was, it was something along those lines. Then, if I share a quick story with the listener in Indian Wells this year, I went back to the, the club, went back to the hotel, went back to the club because I thought it was this amazing evening of tennis, Alcaraz, Draper, Radicanu against Sviantec and got the ticket, the player, the coach's ticket, walked into the box and there was three other people there and you'd, just, you'd lost to Jack the day before and there you were sat, sat there watching Draper against Alcaraz to learn. We all saw your interview last week. We saw you on centre court watching Alcaraz and Djokovic in the final. It seems like that's been in your blood from an early age, watching tennis, learning about tennis, wanting to understand the game better. You know, how, how early do you think and, and how did that get into your blood from such a young age? Um, well, I think fr from a young age, we were like, we're allowed to just, like we're allowed to compete so it didn't matter what age you were playing against but I would often play against like you know kids that were four or five years older than us um we would sometimes play in um the the local sort of tennis club like matches so we'd play like doubles against some of the other you know some of the other clubs in the area um you know when we were you know really quite young and we're playing yeah. against you know 30 40 year olds so obviously clearly we can't compete by you know matching them for strength and power but you're having to find ways to win you know by, by i guess being smarter than them and using you know different shots and you know using lobs and angles rather than just trying to hit the ball harder yeah and i i did find that a lot actually when i moved over to spain um because again, I was always training with grown men most of the time. Um, you know, I was only 15 that I couldn't match them, you know, for, for strength that I had to play a slightly different way to, you know, to win against them and compete. And physically, I, I wasn't very strong, to be honest, like as a junior player, like, you know, I was, I was pretty thin, um, you know, probably didn't look like a, you know, a great athlete at the time. So, yeah. you know, I had to use like, my brain and my 
you know, my hand skills to to try and beat these, you know, these 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 men basically. And yeah, I think it's probably a combination of of those things, like you know, playing up age groups and playing against older you know older people since since i was really young i think has probably helped that because you can't you couldn't just win by by brute force you had to find um you know you had to find a different way and i also i i did watch loads of tennis when i was young like i, I used to um i was out injured once again when i was 15 16 i was out with my a knee injury for like six months and i used to um you know, I would sit when all the matches were on Sky Sports and I would sit in front of the TV and like watch like five, six hours of tennis in a row when I couldn't, you know, train or do much rehab and take notes on all of the players and stuff and how I would play against them. And, you know, and it, it helped a lot when I actually got on the tour because a lot of those guys, like I've been watching them since I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. I've been watching them for four or five years and taking notes on them that, and the, the the one guy, and I never got to play him in a match, but I loved watching him when I was a kid, was Correa. And I got to practice with him once or twice when I was in Barcelona. He came to the academy where I was at to train. And I, he may see this differently, but I could just see what he was going to do. Like right, I was okay. reading exactly what he was going to do when we were practicing with each other. And, you know, I was able to win against him when I was only... 16 or so um you know to have all my friends around the court that were at the academy like on clay no on hard um unfortunately not on <laughs> not on clay um but yeah like i just yeah i loved i loved watching and found that side of the game you know really really interesting and i actually probably i wish i'd been able to do it more over these last sort of seven eight years like actually have the time to sit down and watch matches in the stands and you know le learn a little bit more because it, it, it definitely helps because how different is it and i believe it's massive to watch a whole match and understand the context understand the ebbs and flows understand people's patterns under pressure people's behaviors under pressure than it is right now There'll be a lot of kids that watch tennis, but they're watching tennis TV on Instagram. They're watching the the underarm serve, the through the leg shot. They're watching the highlight reel, which is so, so different to watching a full tennis match. Yeah, and I think one of the problems with, with that is that, like, yeah, when someone hits an underarm serve, and I've hit a few in the last couple of years, and, you know, with sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know, when a through the leg shot, when someone pulls that off, like, yeah, it's brilliant. It's great to watch, but the percentage of points that players actually win when they do that sort of stuff, you know, in my opinion is, is very low. And you could see someone try five in a match and they win one. And that's what everyone sees on the highlights package, not the other five through the leg shots that they butchered or when they hit an underarm serve and, you know, the players just run up to it and hit a winner or they double faulted with it or whatever. And yeah, and generally that Alcaraz is probably an exception because most points that he plays are highlight. But, you know, what tends to win matches is, you know, the consistency and, you know, repeating like, you know, high percentage tennis over and over again and executing that under pressure, not, you know, hitting one through the leg shot here and there doesn't work the majority of the time. So, 
yeah, it's probably it's, it is a bit of an issue with the way that people see tennis now on social media. Like, yes, it is, it's entertaining it is, yeah. and it's fun. I like watching it, but watching a three-hour tennis match, the very few points are like that. Absolutely, and one of one of the most impressive stats I think you have, Andy, is. 11 Grand Slam finals. Not many people talk about that. 11 Grand Slam finals, three wins, three Grand Slams, double gold medalist, world number one, Davis Cup winner, you know, and there's there's been so many amazing tennis players over the years, but they haven't reached that kind of a mortality level of, of, of doing those things. And you're one of a very select few that have. I know there's not a magic secret portion. <laughs> I know it's not quite as simple as that. But what is it? What is it when you reflect on that? Because we take the newcomers, Alcaraz, we've talked about. He's got it. He's got it. Shriontek, she's got it. You know, but there hasn't been that many. So going from being an amazing tennis player to being those ones that year in, year out are making Grand Slam finals, winning Grand Slams that you have done, what would you put that down to? There's certain players that that, that are that, that are just that are special and have like and have everything. Um, but yeah, the thing that probably separates the the, the top top players, yeah, is, is probably the mind. Um, and I know people say that you know a lot. Um, I often see it used just based on like someone's mind mindset during a match or in an important moment in the match but to me there's a lot more to it than just that it's you know how do these players like how do they deal with losses like how do they how do they learn from setbacks how how is their mentality like every single day during the year like when they're training and when they're you know are they cutting sessions short in the gym are they you know, out partying when they should be in bed, you know, sleeping and preparing for, you know, the next day's work. And, you know, it's not as simple as just, oh, that that person's really good, like, you know, under pressure um, or, you know, when they're in a third set tie break. Um, that's what everyone sees on the, on the TV or when they're watching in the stands. Yeah. But to me, it's like the thing that separates the top, top ones is that they're able to do that like day after day like consistently um year after year um and and that's why yeah that the guys that have been up at the, the top of the game you know certainly during my era you know been what's well, incredible what they've done because it, you can work extremely hard for 10 years and, you know, be right on it for all those 10 years. And as soon as you drop off for six months and you're not focused, you know, on your practices and you're not doing all the right things away from the court and your training and everything, you aren't going to stay there. And that's what's been amazing to me about what Novak and Rafa and Roger have done. Yeah, it's just that longevity of clearly loving the game, but being able to just, you know, work hard and focus on their tennis for such a long period um it's not that you can't enjoy other things it's not that you can't enjoy life you know and you solely have to focus on tennis it's just when you show up to the practice court are you working hard are you are you, are you putting in the right the right effort and when you show up to the tournaments like are you giving your best and 
yeah, it, it's it's very different to what a lot of people, I think, when they talk about mindset and mentality, yeah. it's often just about what happens on the match court. And to me, what separates the, the great athletes and the great players, it's what they're doing away from the court as well, um, consistently, day after day, when there isn't anyone watching. And that's arguably the harder part of it. And you need a complete obsession to do that. Um, for me, obsession is probably a, is an unhealthy word. And at times I probably got that wrong during okay. my career. And I wish at times that, you know, I, I had taken a step back and, you know, enjoyed successes a little bit more and, and taken yeah. a bit more time off and, and those sorts of things. That is also a skill in itself as well to, to be able to do that. Um, you know, and I, and I wish I'd, I'd been better at that during my career. Um, I at times would have been like too hard on myself or after, you know, a really good week, like just straight on to the next tournament and not enjoying like, you know, the, the, the wins or being too hard on myself after, you know, a difficult loss. Um, the thing I'm proud of is, is my, my work ethic and what I've put into you know, my career, like, I'm glad I, I did all of the hard work. I wish at times, though, I'd been able to take a step back and say, now it's time to, you know, now it's time to rest and, you know, take a little break. And, yeah, I, I don't think you need to be obsessed with the sport, um, you know, to get those results. But I do think, you you know, you have to have, yeah, lots of dedication um, to be up there for, for a long period. When we talk about mindset, Andy, there's, there's there's two things I've always wanted to ask you, and it's two probably quite defining moments in in my tennis life, if I'm honest. And I've kind of, I think we we all have, especially British people, but you've obviously developed a lot of global fans over the years. But we've kind of, a lot of us have lived our tennis lives through you, <laughs> you know, and yeah. because we've we were brought up playing against you, you know, we've, we've, we've watched you from afar. And there's two words that I want to touch on. One is belief, which I, I think is a very powerful thing. I felt it very strongly playing against you when you were coming through that you had it. I felt the same thing with Leighton Hewitt when I, I played against him as a junior. I haven't seen it that up close and personal that much, but it was the 2012 semi-final Australian open you kindly invited myself, Josh Ward Hibbert and Liam Brody. They just won the men's doubles at the, at the Aussie open uh, at the boys doubles at Aussie, Aussie open. And you invited us to come and sit in your box for the semi-final match against Novak. And I sat there mesmerized. Like it's one of the best experiences of my tennis life. And I, I sat there, the intensity of that match, the, uh, the drama of that match and you won as you'll remember a seven six third set but it felt like you were riddled with doubt in that set you know Novak you hadn't really got over Novak in those big moments and I felt like I witnessed something that day that your belief system something happened in your belief system almost to the point where you were like, oh my God, I've just won that set. I can't, uh, uh, to the point that then actually you switched off maybe for the, the start, of, start of the fourth set so I've always wanted to know what you took from that match because 2012 was when the real stuff 
when we're talking about you getting to the absolute top of the game started, obviously finalists then at Wimbledon, winning winning the Olympics, winning US Open, then going on to win 2013 Wimbledon. How impactful was, was that match when you reflect back? Um, well, when I spoke to, I did a Instagram thing with Novak during the pandemic and both of us agreed that of the matches that we've played against each other, that that was the best level of tennis that we played, you know, against each other. And I'd probably say like up until that point, um, it wasn't like I'd, I'd not played any good matches in, you know, the latter stages of, of slams. Um, but it's definitely one where I felt like I'd gone out and sort of stuck to, you know, a game plan and, you know, played, the way that was going to give me the you know the best chance of of winning those matches and you know I'd executed you know really 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 well um you know matches like that 10 12 years down the line they look better now when you see what Novak's gone on to do in Australia and how difficult it has been to to beat him there um but yeah certainly at the time it was like yeah that was me playing some of my best tennis in you know the latter stages of a grand slam against yeah one of if not the you know the best player in the world at, at the time on that surface and yes I, I lost it just but um you know it was a clear sign that I was I was really really close and you know providing I kept you know doing the right things and you know working on the right things I was I was going to get more chances to win because up till that point, I hadn't had loads of chances. Um, you know, like I've, obviously I've beaten Rafa at the US Open, um, but when I'd come up against Roger or Novak in the slams, hadn't really got close before. And that was the first time that I'd really, you know, pushed them hard and yeah, got, got really close to the win. And then the second word for me is acceptance. And 2012... I think for me again, the 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 loss to Roger, it was actually uh, my son's christening, and we were all sat around watching, watching the final, and you know everyone was completely grasped by it all. But you then opened your heart to the world, you know, you showed that vulnerability. But I remember something you saying is maybe a couple of days later, you said that maybe you'd accepted that on that on that day or on that period that you might never win a Grand Slam. You know, and that almost became when the floodgates then opened a little bit, which is one of my beliefs in the mind. Sometimes we, when something's too big, it's too we can't accept that we're never going to do it. It's it's so hard to get there. So how defining was that for you? Because it felt like you coming out to the world and speaking like that and speaking with such vulnerability. You then went on to win the Olympics so soon after you then went on to win US Open pretty much soon after. And then the next chance you got at Wimbledon, you then you then won Wimbledon on the back of that. Was that again how defining was that kind of acceptance moment and that vulnerability moment? Yeah. When when I lost that final in 2012, I yeah, it was definitely yeah, most like upset, disappointed I've been after a match, and it wasn't just like on the court. I was like really, really down after that. Um, you know, for quite a few days, you know, and <laughs> I'm not hundred percent sure if Roger said it in his speech, but 
I'd heard a lot over this period, you know, when I'd got close to winning slams, it was like, oh, you know, don't worry, like one of these will come your way type things, like you're going to win one. And it doesn't work like that. And no, you've doesn't. actually seen it in this in this generation now, this generation after, you know, my one. So in between Alcaraz and, and, and my one, that there's very few players that have managed to win slams and it was not easy winning slams against those guys. And I was fine. You know, that was another thing that was, you know, making it, you know, making it hard was that when I got to those major matches, Grand Slam finals, I was coming up against guys that won like anywhere between six and 14, 15 Grand Slams. And it was tough. And yeah, I remember like a few days, like after that match, obviously I had the Olympics with just a few weeks away and, the experience that I'd had um, at the previous Olympics in Beijing, I'd totally blown it. Like, I arrived there off the back of winning Cincinnati. I was probably one of the favourites going into it. Um, and I got, to, like, completely carried away with, like, I went to the opening ceremony. I was, I think I was playing the following day, you know, just hadn't drunk enough. I'd lost something, like, I weighed myself after my match. I cramped in the first round and lost in the first round of the Olympics. And I'd lost like five kilos since I'd arrived. Um, and was so excited about being in the Olympics and, you know, being part of the opening ceremony and, you know, meeting all the other athletes and that sort of stuff that, you know, I just taken my eye off the ball, like, what I was actually there to try and do. And I promised myself that like, if I ever get the chance to do another Olympics, like, I'm going to do like everything to, you know, try and, you know, try and have a better experience um, and try and win a medal. And off the back of that Wimbledon loss where I, you know, really down and disappointed, I had like three, two and a half, three weeks before the Olympics started. And I was like, okay, this is the position you're in last time at the Olympics. We, you know, you need to get yourself back on the court and training again. And you're doing everything that you can. Like, you can't put in more effort and more work than what you're doing. Like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, like, it's okay. Because, yes, like, winning tournaments and winning majors and all of that stuff is it is great. I'm not going to say otherwise. It's brilliant. But, not not everyone is able to do that and what really matters and i don't think this is just in tennis but in all walks of life is that all you can ever do is give your best effort and try as hard as you can you cannot you can't do more than that and at that moment after wimbledon between the olympics was where i probably accepted and and realized that for the first time that yeah, like this might not happen. You might not win a Grand Slam, but you are doing everything that you can to give yourself the best chance to do that. And it so happens that off the back of that, you know, I won the Olympic, won the US Open. And it's easy to sit here today and say, oh, it's just purely because I'd accepted, you know, that I might, you know, I might not do it. But I do think that having that sort of slight shift in mentality and mindset, you know, it, it it did help me a little bit. It certainly helped me to get over the Wimbledon loss and helped me to prepare properly for the Olympics.
Andy, I, I could I could talk to you all night, and and I, and I don't want to because we do we do a quick fire round of control the controllables. I have so many other things I want to delve into. Maybe we do episode three hundred. So I'll maybe save save yeah. that for you as well. But the, I also want to do a little quick fire thing as well around the legend of Andy Murray, and we you're still playing. You've still got your own story to tell as a, as a tennis player. So I don't want to go into fully the, the legend of you yet, but in, in, in four different categories and just to almost give you the category and you to talk briefly on it. And when all is said and done with your playing career, you will be remembered massively for your achievements as uh, in the men's game without a shadow of a doubt. But I've said this for a while now. I think arguably you will also be remembered as much in the women's game for the impact someone in your position, the the way that you have spoken out, the way that you have um, challenged people. And for myself personally, you've definitely challenged me on on subtle sexism that's there that just I wasn't aware of, you know, but because you brought it up and, you know, I remember the the one, you know, reporter saying about somebody winning the, the Grand Slams and then you mentioned Serena and, you know, just those kind of subtleties, you've made a massive difference. And in terms of you doing that with that single mindedness that it takes to have had the career, how have you found the time to be able to put the energy in to equality in the sport? And just very briefly talk about that and what we can do as a sport to bring that to the forefront even more. Um, well, I, I probably also wasn't really aware of it um, until I started working with Amelie Moresmo and also yeah. probably would have been guilty of some of the, you know, the same sort of comments that, you know, would have flown around like the men's locker room and stuff over the years as well. And, you know, never really, I, I didn't pay much attention to it, didn't think it was an issue. Um but then when I started working with Emily was actually when I realized that, you know, is actually a bit of a problem. Um, you know, some of the stuff that, well, pl other players and their coaches were saying to me about her and about, you know, well, just women in, in general. Um, and then the way that it was covered in the, the media, like after losses and stuff, like, never ever see anything about really about coaches um you know of, of players when there's losses and, and things like that but when I was working with Emily you know that relationship was sort of under a lot more scrutiny and and you know I had it had it from my team as well like after losses as well that it was like she's not the right person for you or whatever and it's like well why not? Like if I was working with a number one in the world, former number one in the world male player, like nobody would be questioning it. Mm -hmm. um, and then off the back of that and some of the, the comments and stuff, I then sort of spoke to my mum a bit more about it because my mum had, she'd sort of mentioned it to me and my brother a little bit about what it was like for her like at times but not really never really had many conversations about it but then I obviously had her that I could you know reach out to and say well you know what's it been like you know that people are saying this and you know asking these sorts of questions and yeah and then she was able to tell me like yeah like you know it's been it has been really really difficult and you know my my mom she is amazing um 
you know everything that she's done for not just me and Jamie, but for British tennis, um, you know, she's been incredible and is still doing today. Um, but yeah, she's she's obviously had her her challenges as well. And I was fortunate to have her as sort of, yeah, someone I could, you know, really talk to um, about it. And um, yeah, I, I, to be honest, once, once I became aware of it, I didn't feel like it was something that took up loads of energy. It was just something yeah. that, once you became aware of it, it was like, you know, when someone would make a comment in press or ask me a question about something, like one of them was around American tennis, like, you know, not being great or something like that. And they've had like, you know, That's Serena good. at the time who'd won like 20 odd Grand Slams. It's like, whoa, like, hang on a second. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're ignoring like the best tennis player of all time, pretty much to that moment. Um, yeah. And it just becomes one. Once I became aware of it, I didn't feel like it took up much energy, and just felt like any time I had the opportunity to support, you know, or, or speak up for women's tennis or the female coaches, like I've I've tried to do that. Brilliant, and you've done an amazing job on it. the 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 next one is British tennis. You mentioned British tennis. Um, I actually had Jan Stotchers, who was the performance director of Czech tennis, actually. I spoke to him a couple of days ago. He's up episode 199, which was fascinating. You know, the the Czech way that they, they've, they've had this kind of just conveyor belt of players, certainly on the women's side over the last 20 years. But, you know, really interesting to hear. I've been in Spain for 13 years. You spent a lot of time in Spain. There's a very clearly defined way that Spanish tennis works. If you were the performance director for British tennis... <laughs> What's the what's the first couple of things that you would implement? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the simple answer is I, I don't really know. I could give a few suggestions as to maybe some things that I wouldn't do or, or things that I would support because I experienced a bit myself as a player and I've seen it quite a lot over the years in British tennis. Um which I really don't think is helpful and I think we could do a much better job of is, for example, top young junior wins, w Wimbledon juniors, for example, and let's say they've been training in, you know, their hometown in Manchester. There's always been like, a, it feels to me like, the governing body always wants to take that player and put them into their environment and have their coaches around them and have an element of control over that player. And my opinion is what should be happening with those players is that they should be getting supported in the environment where they've grown up. Um, you know, it's not to say that their environment is necessarily perfect, but it can be very disruptive to a 15, 16 year old moving out of an environment that they're really comfortable with a coach that they're really comfortable with moving away from their parents. Um, it's, I think it's quite a difficult time in lots of children's lives that like there's a lot going on um, at those ages. And I feel like that has happened a lot with our best young prospects and I've heard a lot over the years of British tennis that, you know, we always have good juniors, but we always, you know, we struggle a lot to, you know, kick them on and push them up to the top of the game. And my feeling is, is that, you know, the individual should be supported to 
to make the decisions that are right for them. And I feel like that would give those those players a better chance at having a more successful career by not having to to change you know their training bases and change their coaches and those sorts of things like I when I was 15 I wanted to go over to Spain that was my choice to go over and do that and my family supported me but the governing body didn't really support me at the time you know I was offered a place to train in Sutton uh, at the sort of national academy there at the time and I didn't want to do it I didn't didn't like the setup I, I thought it would be better to go over to Spain and I was offered everything to train at Sutton full you know training program you know expenses coaches you know paying to go to tournaments all of that stuff whereas by choosing to go to Spain it was like a third of the training costs were funded you know to go and train over there and you know my family had to we had to find sponsors and find you know money to go and train over there and Again, that's one of the sacrifices that my parents made, and I'm very grateful for them, you know, for doing that. But I just I feel like that happens quite a lot, and I still see it today that when someone does really well or a young junior is doing well, it's rather than like going, "Oh, brilliant!" Like you know, their coach has done an excellent job there. You know, they're clearly doing great work with them. Let's support that coach and the player, offer them like advice and help with their whatever strength and conditioning and nutrition and you know, all yeah. of those things, but let's not take them out of the environment where they're comfortable and are having success and are, are learning because it's also extremely demotivating for the coaches as well. Like if I was working with a kid for like four or five years and as soon as they start to show promise, you know, look like there's a, a chance that they could become successful and it's like they just get picked out of that environment. As a coach, I'd be like, you know, that's, that's a bit shitty. Like I've done all that work with them to get them to this point, And you've decided like we're the right people to, yeah. you know, to, 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 to take them on. So that, that's one of the things that I would change. And that's, that's purely from a performance side of things. There's clearly other things that probably could be happening at, you know, grassroots level and, you know, schools and everything like that to try and help get more kids interested and into the game. But, I I don't know because I don't spend enough time like looking at those sorts of things. I just know more from the performance side what I've seen over the years, and that's probably the main thing that I would, yeah, try to avoid. Very good. My summary of speaking to Jan a little bit yesterday on the Czech system is that the system adapts to the player, not the player adapting to the system. And yeah. I think, and and I think that's in a nutshell what you've said. You know that you know for for many many years, the the LTA system, the players being expected to adapt to the way that they work. You know whether that's working with the coaches, whether that's location, however it might be, and. <laughs> You know, if there's maybe one thing we can take from the Czech system, it's that, that ability to to, to adapt it. So very good. The family name, the Murrays, you know, a massive, massive name. Uh, in Nottingham, there was a lovely moment. I think it warmed all of our hearts when there was a genuine, there was a genuine surprise that your kids were in the crowd watching you win that event, you know, which was, which was incredible. So, you know, how much motivation does that give to you you know, to be able to have these experience in front of your kids? Well, I thought it, I really thought it would. Um, and it was something like when my kids were, they're still young, but when they were younger that 
I was like, oh, it would be nice to keep playing, you know, so that they'll be able to potentially see me play, you know, at Wimbledon or so they were old enough to understand what it is that I do for a living and they don't care. <laughs> you know, they they really they really don't care and yet, yeah, yet, realize, yet, yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well I think that but that's the thing is that as tennis players like certainly individual tennis players i think we see things often through like our own eyes and you know at times can be you know selfish um and selfishly like i wanted that probably more for myself than for them like i was saying like oh it'd be nice if they could you know grow up and come and watch me play (laughs) but then (laughs) Yeah, when they've come along to do it, like they're really not interested in in watching me play tennis. Like they, you know, they're more interested in being in the players' lounge afterwards and, you know, playing on the table tennis table or playing table football or just playing hide and seek or whatever. And yeah, maybe further down the line, you know, they might be like, oh, you know, that's quite cool that you know, their dad was 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 a, was a good tennis player, but. My family have been unbelievably like supportive and my wife and encouraging me to like keep playing and to, you know, to keep, keep going, um, which has made a huge help. If that wasn't the case, obviously, you know, I probably still wouldn't be out here. But yeah, I feel like rather than them being a motivating factor for me, like, I don't really know how to phrase this, but like they're sort of they're pushing me like to 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 keep going rather than me sort of yeah. looking at my children and saying, "Oh, this is why I'm still playing tennis." It's more that my family are being so supportive and you know motivating me in a different way to get back out there and keep trying, keep going. Um, and although it's a small thing, like one of the, the I can't remember after which match it was, but it was at some stage in the last year. I'd come home and I'd lost, um, you know, in the tournament that I'd come back at. My daughter said to me, oh, daddy, did you like, did you lose your tennis match? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I lost, um, you know, so that that's why I'm home early um, type thing. And she was like, "That that's okay, daddy. Like, you just keep working hard and you try, you know, oh, you try again. And yeah, I was happy that, because I, tr- you know, I tried to tell that, you know to them and you don't always know whether your kids are listening um but yeah it's nice like to hear you know to hear that how old's the eldest eldest is seven and she's actually out of all of them is the least interested um yeah because i've often i thought of my kids they never really had any interest in my tennis or my coaching or my job or my things. But actually I got a call tonight of my 12 year old. He's in Germany playing a tennis Europe actually event. And he hardly ever calls, but he called because his mom had obviously told him I was speaking to you later. And he was like, how are you, you're speaking to Andy Murray. Oh, he was, he was like, how are you doing? How have you done that? <laughs> he went, you're so jammy. You're so lucky. How have you, <laughs> how have you done that? So it's, I think they're starting, they start to get a bit more street cred when they yeah. get, you know, so he'll be telling all the other lads, my dad's speaking to Andy Murray, to, you know, tonight. Oh, so like, I think it does maybe 11 or 12, it, it changes a, it changes a little bit, maybe. Yeah. And, I'm and, not sure, I'm not sure I'll still be going in, in four <laughs> so or five uh, years time. Uh, so that's, <laughs> there's your motivation. And to, will they play tennis? If they do, and if anyone doesn't know listening, not only would Andy Murray be, the 
the tennis dad, but you would then have some pretty super grandparents, tennis grandparents yeah. behind behind those kids as well. Would would you like them to go down that route, or or again, it's not about you. Do, are they showing any signs that they will? Um, so the the two eldest ones play once a week for forty five minutes, and if it was something that they really wanted to do, then I would absolutely support them in doing that. I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't push them towards. I I, I will push them to be to be active um, and to try lots of different sports because yeah. I think so many benefits can come from sports and being part of sports teams and everything um, from well health perspective and just learning a bit about life, like learning about winning and losing and those sorts of things. I think sport is, is brilliant for that um yeah i think yeah for, for your mental health as well and also maybe i certainly felt it helped me but like when i was getting to like 13 14 years old just sort of kept me away from doing silly stuff at times like because yeah. i was going to my tennis coaching or my football clubs and those sorts of things so i would definitely encourage them to you know to try sports and to to stay active and stuff but um, you know, I'm not getting them to play tennis sort of four or five times a week. Um, you know, it's just only only if they're enjoying it. And you, Andy Murray, what do you want to be remembered for? Um, I don't, I don't know really. Um, I mean, I think, like I said earlier in the chat, like for me, the thing that I will. I know that I'll be proud of like when I finish my career is that yes that I've given pretty much everything that I have like from a physical perspective like to the sport like I've really you know given yeah put a lot of lot of hard yards and effort in and I've been very fortunate I've been very lucky to have the you know the career that I've had um in tennis I'm very grateful to tennis for you know providing me with you know with with that and the chance to travel the world and do all those you know amazing things and go to incredible cities and play in front of massive crowds and stuff i've loved it it's been brilliant um but yeah there's not something that i necessarily want to want to be remembered for just yeah that that i've given yeah given given my all to to the sport really and when the playing does end, none of us want it to end. We're not talking about it ending anytime soon. What would be next for Andy Murray? Well, initially, I'll you know I'll, I'll definitely spend more, way more time at home. I'm not going to rush into doing a a job that means that I'm having to like I wouldn't want to coach full time on the tour immediately. Like I, I've said that to my, my wife and my family, like I do love being at home, like over that grass season, I was home for like, you know, two months in a row and it's brilliant. And I also got that opportunity at times when I was injured in these last few years to just to be at home. And it's, it's been brilliant. And I do love that. I love being a dad. I love being at home. So that's will definitely be my priority um, initially, but I also don't want to sit and not do anything like during the days, like when I'm home and the kids are at school for a couple of days, it's nice. But by like Wednesday midday, I'm like, 
I have to do something. I'm like walking around the kitchen. I don't know what to do with myself. So I will definitely, you know, <laughs> I'll get a job and I will work. Um, but what that, what that looks like, I, I really am. I, I'm not sure. Um, to be honest, I, I definitely won't do commentating. I know that, um, I definitely won't be doing any commentary work. I don't didn't didn't enjoy doing that. And did you not? No, I, I didn't enjoy doing it. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, did didn't enjoy doing it. Um, too much talking. You know, <laughs> you get a four hour match. There's not always something like there's not always something to say. Um, and yeah, did didn't really enjoy the the commentary stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that I you know, I probably would enjoy doing is like analyzing matches a little bit more. I think they do quite a good job of that in football. Like, yep. you know, I follow football a lot and it's quite interesting. Like Gary Neville and Jamie Redknapp do a really good job of like getting their opinions out there and often they're contrasting and it, it, it works really nicely, I think. Whereas in tennis, I feel like when people are analyzing and talking about matches that everyone just agrees with each other all the time. There's no real, yeah. no, I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with what you said there and this is why, and you know, I'm going to show you in this video why that's wrong. Yeah. Um, like that side of things I, I find more interesting. Um, yeah. To get contrasting opinions out there and different views on, on matches and matchups and those things. But yeah, I find didn't find the commentary stuff that that interesting. So Nick Kyrgios, you could coach him. That that all you need is five weeks, <laughs> five weeks on tour. He doesn't, yeah. <laughs> you know. So that's so that's one job, and then we'll maybe get you talk you and Nick talking about a match. I would imagine you might disagree. <laughs> so, so so that's it sorted. Andy, before the, we go to the quick fire, and the quick fire can be really quick if you want it to be really quick. Um, I want to say thank you to you. You know, because to be able to one get you on this platform that we've been doing now for the last three years, but you know, for me genuinely, and I'm not saying this because you're here, you are the greatest British sportsman ever. I I truly believe that. You know, you've you've inspired me, my family, millions of people around the world. You know, and for me to get the chance to publicly thank you on on this platform is really special for me so a big big thank you on everything that you've given to us i'm sure you hear it lots but i can't say enough quite what you've given to so many of us so a big well done your career's not over you know go and write your next chapter you know it's your it's your chapter yeah. to write and i'm sure i'm sure there's a brilliant chapter but a big big thank you on behalf of myself and everybody involved with the podcast i appreciate that thank you Quick fire round. You ready? Yeah. Who is the GOAT in your opinion? Just so I'm clear, this has to be like quick answers. It's up to you. Andy, well, I'll have I'll stay up until midnight. I'm happy okay, to have as so much of your time as on, you've got. On, on that one, to me, it is it is very nuanced because tennis is not as simple as it. it's always played under the same conditions. You have a clay core, a grass court, and a hard court. And all around, or across the three surfaces, Novak has to go down as, as the best. But if I had a match for my life on a clay court, there's no chance I'm taking Novak over Rafa. Um, on a hard court, I would. Um, <laughs> but not on a clay court. And on a grass court, 
I mean, it's a toss up for me between him and him and Novak. Sorry, Novak and and Roger. And then it's like, well, back in the day, like three of the slams were played on grass. If three of the slams were played on grass, you know, Federer would have won about 30 grand slams. If two of these slams were played on clay courts, like Rafa would have won however many. So all around, you would have to give it to Novak, but it's tennis is not is not just played on on the one surface it's always different and yeah like rafa's by far the greatest clay court player of all time and then like i said with the other surfaces it's it's not clear on you roger. know on hard courts it is on hard courts for me it's clear novak is clearly the best roger, roger had roger had one inside out forehand that could have changed that history as well yeah um yeah he could have done and a lot of people also don't necessarily want to give it to Novak because of how much Roger and Rafa's rivalry and stuff, how much they were loved. And for me, it's it's not like that. I'm not, I mean, I've always had a good relationship with Novak. Um, my losses and my career would look better if Novak was the best of all time, I, you know. But yeah, just I think it's just a bit more nuanced than it just being, oh, well, it's, well, it's him because it's not the same conditions every week. Roger or Rafa? Um, <laughs> Roger. Serena or Venus? Serena. Carlos or Novak? Novak. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. If you could relive one moment in your career or you could redo one moment in your career, what would it be? Um, I'd probably like to redo the French Open final against Novak. Um, yeah, it would be that because although the scoreline might not look, I was very close in that match. I won the first set had break points early in the second set yeah. and was you know I was in a pretty good position um and for me if I'd managed to win the French Open that would have been yeah probably would have been the best win of my career um so yeah I would probably like to have another go at that one underarm serve or not <laughs> or not <laughs> You do it, and and I guess tactically, tactically you do it for a reason. I guess people are standing in the back fence. Then it's become it's become fair game. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not against players using it. Um, it's just I would always rather hit a normal serve than an underarm serve. Um, but I'm I'm not against players using it. I think it's a legitimate tactic. Like you said, players have started returning from so far behind the baseline. The runbacks are huge now, allowing them to do that. So it's the only way of trying to get them to return from a slightly different position. It it ate all in the fifth set tie break. You don't want to do it and then serve and volley like Davidovich did against Rune at Wimbledon. No. <laughs> it's not yeah, a good that move. Was, no, no, that was a Bad, uh, bad error, especially uh, on the grass court. And Rooney wasn't standing that far no, back either. It was never going to work. A brain fart if we've ever had one. If you could coach any current player on the men's or women's tour, who would it be and why? 
mean, it's a, it's a pretty pretty boring answer this, but I would I would have to say Alcaraz, just because one I think it'd be great fun. I think he seems like he's you know really like coachable. He has all of the shots. I mean. Yeah, I I would love love to coach him, and then on the women's side, I'd love to coach Spiatek. Um because yeah, I think they're both brilliant. I love watching both of them. They both seem like you know really nice, good people, and yeah, they're still young, so still probably can still learn a lot, and you know, still bound to improve. Um, so yeah, I mean. I'm sorry about those answers, but I mean, it would be, it would have to be those two. You want an easy lifer? Yeah. <laughs> Alcaraz is how quick he learns. I, I saw him play a Punta Romano in a, in a challenger event whenever it was. And he was like, Ferreira was pulling his hair out. He was just pulling the trigger off every ball and like going crazy, like going for the biggest forehands when he didn't need to. I literally saw him three months later playing Davis Cup at Punta Romano and he'd refined that so much in that three-month period. It feels like he's such, he just catches on so quick and in, in his ability to, which is scary, you know, when you think of his age, what he's what he's going to be able to do in the next two, three, four years. Um, let cords or not? Or not. Medical timeouts or not? <sighs> Um, yes, to medical timeouts, but there should be, um, there should be like a forfeit of game when, when it happens, you know, to avoid, you know, people doing it from a tactical perspective or to break up the match. Um, the person should have to give away like, you know, their opponent's next service game so that it's not. It's not hampering the the opponent, in in my opinion. So yes, the medical timeouts, but I do think there should be a penalty for using them. And a one that's very apt for you after this year's Australian Open. When playing five sets, should they be an extra toilet break, or should players be provided with a nappy? <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for me. The biggest issue I had with that match wasn't so much the 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 toilet situation. It was more that we finished at four in the morning, and I think that that's the, something that tennis needs to sort out because it's it is ridiculous. And you know, you often will see people saying, or you'll get people saying, "You oh, you know, like you spoiled tennis players, like you know, try doing a whatever a nine to five, you know, job, like just get on with it type thing," but. It's not really the it's, for me. It's not really the point. It's no. like people come to watch tennis matches to be entertained. You want to see like you know the best sort of physical performance that you can. So not just for that match, but hopefully for the rest of the tournament as well. And it's not just the players that are involved in it. It is all of the officials. It's all of the people that work behind the scenes at the tournament that are working for the TV stations. It's the ball kids. You know, it's their families and all of that stuff. So, yes, players can go and play a match until four in the morning, even though, you know, it does ruin their chances of recovering for the the following match. But it's every, everyone else that goes with it. Um, it's just, 
it's so stupid and they need to find a better way of doing it but they won't because they're doing what's best the tournament will do what's best for them and what's best for them financially so yeah that that won't change the same same at Wimbledon this year with the the rules around the roof and you know the curfews and all of those sorts of things and uh, it, it, it won't change What's one rule change you would make in tennis? Um, I would probably get rid of the. I'd probably get rid of the five-minute warm-up. You know, obviously, it would sort of slightly change the way that players have to do things but because the five-minute warm-up is allowed. You, you know, we all practice like sort of two and a half hours before the match, and then you know, get into the locker room, shower, eat, and then warm up and go. Whereas I would get rid of the five-minute warm-up and you know, give players their practice slots scheduled like before their matches. So players, you know, warm up for, you know, kind of like a football team would, you know, they go out on the pitch, they warm up for 25, 30 minutes on the pitch, they go in, get dressed, and then out they come and they play. Um, I would probably like to do that, but I don't think that'll change either. If Novak broke you serving for the match, in 2013 at 5-4 who was then favourite to win that match in your mind well um, oh, that's a good question I would think with the bookies I still would have been favourite but <laughs> I, I don't know if I would have been able to come back from that because I, I was also cramping as well um, I hit it pretty well but that was the other thing that was going on at that moment I was like I had that to deal with. I was like, if I don't get over the line here, like physically, I'm, I'm struggling a lot. You know, I'm, I'm gonna cramp. Um, and had that happened, obviously the match could have been, could have been curtains. It was really hot that day, but some of it probably would have been nerves and the pressure, you know, the tension. But yeah, uh, I, I think he probably would have. I think he probably would have been been the favorite for. It, for tennis, like if, like for tennis people, they would have seen that and been like, oh, it's tough to come back from that." F from my perspective, what does "control the controllables" mean to you? Well, it's yeah. For me, it's about taking care of all of the things that that the that, that you can. So I would use it and like from a tennis perspective, and I think I've spoken a bit about it and what separates like the top players from yeah. everyone else is that they are taking care of all of those things like you know they're training they're eating they're sleeping like day after day after day and yeah are in control of in control of those things and yeah and 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 then trying not to worry about the things that are out of your control and again that is about controlling your your mind um as well because we all have those doubts and fears and all of those things but yeah you need to learn to need to learn to control those things so from a tennis perspective that's how i would i would view it and the last question i ask every guest there's been a lot of guests have said your name over the years andy um when i asked this question but the thing that i want to preempt before this last question you are the responsibility holder to pass the baton. That's how it works at Control the Controllables. So, like, I had one guest that said Donald Trump, 
and you'll get the question in a minute. And I said, well, how are you going to get Donald Trump onto this podcast? And they said, well, I, I, I'm not going to be able to. So you can only say a name that you have the ability to get them on. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? <laughs> I mean, you've got, to, you've got to go big, don't you? I mean, sure. having having you on here... You are you are the door to some much bigger names, you right, know. Okay. You know, there's not there's some people some people that come on as good as a guest as they are, they don't quite have that door to unlock. Um I'm gonna go with a tough one for me between Alcaraz and Medvedev. Um and the reason I say that is because I think Medvedev, I'm not saying Alcaraz is not interesting, but I think Medvedev's a very interesting character. I think he looks at things a bit differently. And I think would I think he'd probably be a really interesting guest. Um so I'm gonna go with Medvedev. Great guest. I will see you in person. I won't keep hassling you. Andy, now that I've got your number, don't worry. But I, when I see you in person, I will mention to you, come on, we let's have that little word with Daniel. Andy, I can't tell you what a star you are, mate, Like to, to come on, to give you time like this. And I absolutely love the conversation. Everyone that listened will as well. A big, big, big thank you. And keep doing your thing. We're all fully behind you. All the best over the next few weeks. Cheers, mate. I'll see you, um, I'll see you in Cincinnati. Well, unfortunately, given Andy's ab injury in Cincinnati, I didn't get to catch up with him in Cincinnati, but I am travelling to New York tomorrow where I hope that his body is fine and he will be playing at the US Open. And I hope we'll get to have a chat off air and again, thank him so much for, for coming on. And, and as always, I've got Control the Controllables producer and my wife, Vicky, a big happy anniversary, by the way. Oh, thank you. 15 years putting up with myself but it's uh, always great to, to have Vicky to to chat and unpack the episode that we've just done and yeah it feels like we've been chasing <laughs> chasing Andy for for a while and sometimes when that happens it can disappoint you know when you actually finally get to to have the conversation but he far from disappointed he exceeded all of my expectations and what an incredible guest for us to have. No, he really did. Like, best anniversary present ever. <laughs> um, and I said in episode 199, when we announced that he was coming on, that I'd already listened to it twice, and I'm on to my fourth, my fourth listen already, and I'm still picking up those things. It, you know, we're massive Andy fans in our family, and we've followed his career for so long, so I'd like to think we'd, you know, know a lot about his tennis and his journey, but... He, he was talking about things in that chat that I, I hadn't heard before. No, absolutely. And, and, and I think, in fact, you just had a thought there. It would be kind of cool to, to get all the listeners together and have a big <laughs> Zoom chat. To be, and I bet you every single person would come up with almost something different. Yeah, that, that, probably. That, that they took with it. And it was, you know what it was for me, I think, Vicky? It was the, it was the layers to his answers. Like he was so, so measured with his answers. I was like, I speak so fast and he speaks so slowly and he really takes time to think about what he's saying. It was, yeah, absolutely. I think measured's a good word and considered is a good word, you know, and we, 
a good friends with Andy's coach, Mark Hilton, and we've spent a few days with him actually out in Soto Grande this week. And one thing Mark did say to me was he is incredibly considered. You know, when if Mark asks for feedback or he asks a question, he'll say, I'll go away and I'll think about that and I'll come back and he'll come back and give, give an answer. And I think that we see this raw emotion of Andy Murray on the court. And, you know, and he gets so, he's so caught up in the emotion when he's, when he's playing and competing. But as an individual, to get that level of insight on how considered he was when he spoke about the GOAT, you know, who's the greatest of all time? It wasn't just a straight answer. There was many layers and intelligent layers to, to that answer. I absolutely loved the answer that he gave around what, what makes a champion because we often talk about what takes someone from good to great. But what takes someone from great to the immortal of, of winning multiple Grand Slams and, and writing your name in the history books of tennis? And again, he was considered with that, but he was, he was clear with that. You know, he went into different layers and detail of what the mindset really was. You know, it wasn't just a simple answer of the mind. It, he wanted to give us more than that. And, and for anybody listening, you know, to be able to pick the brains of such a masterful mind of Andy Murray, I, I thought that was a, one absolute incredible answer of many. I really liked what he was saying about watching matches all the way through. You brought it up as well. The difference between the highlights reel and watching what goes on in in, in a full match and when what how players are dealing with all everything that goes on with stress. And then when he said, when you asked him about what's next, you know, when he does stop playing, what would be next for him? And he said he didn't want to commentate. I was like, no, we can't lose all of his amazing insight because he does explain things so well. And the insight that us as TV viewers or whether it would be on the radio that we would get from him commentating on and giving his opinions on matches would be huge. But then he he said about analysis and yeah, perfect absolutely perfect how good would he be at that i was thinking god if i was a producer of eurosport or bt sport or B- the bbc i would be creating a program or a role right now <laughs> ready for andy murray for when he retires and somebody who disagrees with him and because actually i was really fortunate enough to to have a couple of meals with andy and his team over the over this year and there was one particular meal in Indian Wells and we were talking about that exact subject and he was saying how he loves the Neville Carragher Premier League back and forth because there's there's a bit of needle and, and it got me thinking all his life he's had that with Jamie <laughs> you know and they've kind of gone back and forth he's he's his mum Judy likes a bit of banter as well and if you are around Andy it is constant banter you know people used to think he's this grumpy old or grumpy young man but he's always been joking around him and Lendl the amount of stories the amount of times I've seen them two joking around at, at, at the Grand Slams you know he's someone that he's so competitive but he likes banter and if you got the perfect person who disagreed with Andy Murray on something and you could build that relationship, uh, it would just be just a brilliant watch because it would be entertaining. Tennis TV gold. Yeah, well, it would, but it would be incredibly entertaining, but also incredibly insightful. And uh, yeah, I mean... I'll any- have a think I'll have a think on that. Maybe I can pitch it to someone. <laughs> yeah, well, if we could become his agent, we might make some money out of that. But or maybe we get a finder's fee for on that. But yeah, so many things that we 
could that we could jump into. I agree with you, Vicky. Watching tennis, that's hit the hit the headlines after he was on centre court watching Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic in the final at Wimbledon. He that is something he does all the time, always has from a young age. A bit like why I have lo- love podcasts and love listening to podcasts. You get the context. You know, you start to really understand things. If you just get the headline or you just read a, a very quick article, it's hard to pick up the the context of what somebody is meaning. And it's exactly the same with a tennis match. And I think it's just, we live in a world where we don't have a lot of time for some reason. Instant gratification, we talk about it all the time. But spending time watching tennis matches does improve your tennis. The courier example of knowing where he was going at Sanchez Cassell at the Academy. I mean, what a great what a great story that was. Yeah, it was. And what he said about when he gave him the choice of reliving or redoing a moment in his career. I think the competitor comes out there. Because um, yeah, he's you know he he, he doesn't want to relive when he's done that. He wants to go back and like oh, go back and redo that match. That was a that given, match. probably thinking about mm-hmm. it. He was going to go back and redo. I think that was my favourite quick fire round though, because we've got some awesome stories. <laughs> it wasn't that quick, no. <laughs> but and it at, was brilliant. And at that point, we've been speaking for over an hour. And a little story: he actually said we had thirty minutes at the start, so I feel like we got a little win, a control the controllables <laughs> win. Yeah, and he could give us another win maybe if he uh, if he delivers on either Medvedev or Alcaraz. I don't know. I thought he'd say someone in British tennis or something, but no, Alcaraz. Or Medvedev. I was like, we'll take either. We'll take either. Those are the circles that he runs in. (laughs) But that would be amazing. But it did make me think we have, like you said at the start, we have had Sir Andy Murray in our sights ever since we started this podcast. So where do we go now? Well, actually, you know what? We love you, Andy, but you've you've only won three Grand Slams, mate. And (laughs) Our our next guest has won twenty five, so we can we we keep we keep on moving up, and that is <laughs> Alfie Hewitt, the incredible wheelchair tennis player. Uh, come on, Andy, you're twenty two behind Alfie. <laughs> if you can you can get working. So Alfie is coming up in the next week or so, and we'll also before that have the U.S. Open preview where we're looking ahead to Flush and Meadows 2023. So much more to look forward to. And we hope that you have enjoyed the episode as much as we did in making it and bringing this to you. And just once again, a big, big thank you to Andy Murray for his generosity, giving up his time, his insight, his knowledge for for all of us to, to learn from and enjoy. We hope... Lots more of you will delve into the other 199 episodes. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>